Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast newscast. Collector Tom and Paul here to bring you the latest media law headlines. We have the Met's illegal filming of children at a climate protest, the revocation of TV Rain's licence and the return of the online safety bill. But first, SLAPs, that is strategic lawsuits against public participation, have returned to the headlines in recent weeks. This seems to have stemmed from Tom Tugendhat, the Minister of State for Security, refusing to accept an amendment to the Economic Crime Bill a couple of weeks ago that would have given judges the power to dismiss legal cases brought against journalists if they found such cases to be slaps designed to chill public interest journalism. Tugendhat said that he agreed the law needed to be reformed to tackle the threat of slaps to public interest journalism, but it was not appropriate to add the amendment to the Economic Crime Bill. He said the Ministry of Justice was working on a piece of anti-slaps legislation that addressed the problem as a whole. This was swiftly followed by a Guardian column written by David Davies, Conservative MP for Halton and Howden, in which he claimed that free speech is now under threat from oligarchs and crooks who are abusing our world-renowned legal system in order to silence their critics. Davies called for a commitment from ministers to bring forward the freestanding slaps bill that limits oligarchs' ability to wage lawfare. A week later, a coalition of 70-plus journalists, editors and media lawyers called on the Justice Secretary, Dominic Raab, to back a proposed law to tackle, and I quote, the global super-riches use of abusive legal tactics to shut down investigations. The letter calls on Raab to urgently tackle the endemic use of slaps which they said was hampering not only investigative journalism, but also law enforcement's ability to investigate wrongdoing promptly and effectively. In response, a Ministry of Justice spokesperson said that the issue was of the utmost importance and is being given urgent consideration. We've discussed slaps uh, on this podcast many times before, but it's worth probably responding to, well, the three different instances here where it's reached the headlines in the last two weeks. Well, I'll start with David Davis and his piece, um, because the central character in all of this is Dominic Raab. Dominic Raab is the one who has had libel reform uh, in his sights for some time, and as Justice Secretary, he is the one who is uh, in charge of trying to drive through further reforms to defamation law. He's the one that put out the consultation on slaps that we discussed on the podcast earlier in the year. So he's very much the central character here. And uh, for context, it is, of course, worth noting that uh, Rab himself is currently the subject of several different bullying allegations relating to his work as a minister, um, which are currently uh, under investigation. Rab Uh, has maintained publicly that the allegations are baseless. David Davis, writing in The Guardian, makes essentially a very simple uh, complaint, one that we've heard many times from many people, that English defamation law allows the rich and the powerful to suppress criticism of their conduct in a way that is fundamentally unjust and counter to the principles of free speech, open democracy, transparency, yada yada, all the rest of it. This strikes me as, I'm searching for the phrase, it's probably something better than a bit rich, but I'll go for a bit rich. 
coming from David Davis, given the context surrounding Rab, really, which is who's the person that really this is meant to support the work of. He's there bolstering the case for Rab to get on and do uh, his job, uh, clamping down these slaps. Because in 2011, Dominic Rab himself, a government minister, a rich and powerful man, brought a libel claim against an individual and against a newspaper in respect of an allegation that he had bullied staff at the ministry in which he was at the time a junior minister. And the minister he was working under at the time was David Davis. That lawsuit ultimately settled because there was no way effectively to defend the claim because the principal witness, having left the employ of that government department, had signed a confidentiality agreement, something else that numerous high-profile political figures have in recent years decried the use of. And since the government, the conservative government, would not permit that individual to leave that confidentiality agreement for the purpose of giving evidence, that person could not give evidence and the case could not proceed further. So let's just recap on that, shall we? We've got David Davis, the man who ran the department where an allegation of bullying arose against Dominic Raab, complaining today that English libel law is used to suppress dissent from the actions of the rich and the powerful. And we've seen exactly that happen under his watch in his department a decade ago by the very man who is apparently charged with solving this problem. I'm not sure there's much more to say about that. I mean, I could offer comment, but I can't imagine that I can say anything about it that, that most listeners are not already thinking. The facts speak for themselves. Well, and the other thing, of course, is that when this government talks about the corrupt and the crooked, uh, it's really talking about itself. Um, the corrupt and the crooked are those that were the beneficiaries of dodgy PPE contracts that have made millions and millions of pounds from those contracts. So the idea that the Tory government has a vested interest, has a genuine interest in stamping out the activities of the corrupt and the crooked is of itself not only slightly rich, but very hard to swallow. Um, the corrupt and the crooked uh, in the form of Russian oligarchs, fine. That's a, a useful pantomime villain uh, for us to work with. Except Russian oligarchs under this government are not so much outlawed uh, and penalised as put straight into the House of Lords uh, or given uh, major newspapers. So again, I find it deeply suspicious that this government is interested in the corrupt and the crooked. I'm not surprised that newspapers have jumped on the bandwagon alleging that the corrupt and the crooked benefit uh, from the existing law because, of course, the exact same strategy was used circa 2008 by Paul Dacre in the aftermath of the Max Mosley decision, a decision which exposed and preempted the Leveson inquiry by highlighting just exactly what the news of the world 
would uh, slump to in order to get a story out. In Paul Dacre's words, privacy laws in this country developed, interestingly enough, by Tom Tugganhat's father, Michael Tugganhat, uh, and Sir David Eady, um, were decried by Paul Dacre as enabling the corrupt and the crooked to sleep easily in their beds. Uh, Paul Dacre didn't care to explain which corrupt and crooked people he had in mind, and neither did his newspapers. Uh, the litigation, the extensive litigation that's followed, doesn't bear that out either, because it's not the corrupt and the crooked that bring claims. Uh, it's individuals who've done nothing more than pique the interests, usually of a prurient and sordid press. So the idea that we desperately need slaps reform and that this should occupy the attention of our justice minister is, again, something that I can't fathom. Yes, it may be that there is a slaps problem that the uh, UK faces. But when we talk about endemic systematic problems, we must surely start with legal aid. We must surely start with a criminally underfunded criminal law bar. And we should do something to fix those problems before we get anywhere near to touching the issue of media lawyers and media feeling slightly timorous about taking to task certain individuals. Paul's absolutely right about that. And whilst we're on the subject of legal procedural issues, even if there were a problem with slaps, and it is noteworthy, I think, that uh, we haven't seen a single specialist judge in this field come out and say they don't have the tools already to deal with spurious claims. There are provisions in our civil procedure rules for getting rid of vexatious litigation at source. If a claim is issued that is vexatious in nature, that is, it is without merit and brought for reasons other than a belief that there's a genuine right to be vindicated, judges have provisions in the rules that can be used to kick those claims at a very early stage in proceedings. So what more is actually required is, to me, entirely opaque. Um, I haven't seen any sign, and I've spoken with practicing lawyers, I've spoken with judges in the field, I have seen no sign whatsoever at any point during the time we've been having these conversations over the last two years that judges think they don't already have the tools to deal with this. It's worse so it's than you think. It's a confected argument, so far as I can see. It's worse than you think, Tom. Wow. Because what will happen... That must be If bad, we project Paul. further into the future, we can envisage an outcome in which some kind of ham-fisted sledgehammer provision is implemented in which there's some kind of penalty that's imposed on the litigant where a judge decides that the case is a slap. And so what will happen is that we find the circumstances which already exist in which the claimant, often an individual, often an individual without much money, is libeled or has their privacy unfairly invaded by uh, the mainstream press. They already operate in circumstances uh, in which it's disadvantageous for them to bring litigation but there will be some that get through those that have money 
limited amounts of money, but they have some sort of money. What will happen then? This is a tool to allow newspapers to override the legitimate interests of those who wish to protect their reputation, who wish to protect their private lives, because it will give extra incentive, extra weapons to the arsenal of a media lawyer to say, we are going to make an application for this to be a slap. And if it is found to be a slap, that puts you on the hook for these penalties. And so what will happen is the litigant will suffer, including the litigant who has a legitimate case. And that's where we're going with this. And then I suspect what will happen is that such a litigant, there will at some point be one who is a celebrity with the means to bring a case anyway, notwithstanding the slap provision. They will get slapped down at first instance. There will then be an appeal to the Court of Appeal, which will adopt and strained interpretation of the statute and overturn the High Court decision, which the newspaper will then appeal to the Supreme Court, which will controversially, in the eyes of some, but entirely justly in the eyes of others, reinstate the High Court decision, at which point our celebrity will be left with no option but to bring a challenge based on their uh, right to reputation under Article 8 in the Strasbourg Court, which will take several years, Eventually, the Strasbourg court will rule that there was indeed a violation of Article 8 because the provision slapped down the case far too early. And the newspapers will then have a whale of a time for several weeks uh, decrying the interference of the Strasbourg court with the wonderful free speech provisions of the United Kingdom uh, and playing up this as a massive row between two different legal regimes talking about how we were supposed to get Brexit done, conflating the uh, European Convention with the European Union in a way that uh, even a first-year undergraduate uh, would be ashamed to do, and so on and so forth. And we will see this unfold as an, another tedious political row over several years. And it is also completely unnecessary. That's and, so why, and so why is the Tory government doing this? Tory government is doing this because in order to stay in power, it needs the support of the right-wing press. And not only is the right-wing press losing its grip on reality, it's losing its grip on popular control. It can't compete with social media. It can't compete with the true voice of the British public that is seeping through mm. social media. It relies on people being easily manipulated. And that is why the Tories are so keen to push this through, because it will benefit their pals in Fleet Street who push the same agenda that the Tories are happy to get on board with. You know what would also help, Paul? What would also help the government uh, would be if they could come up with some piece of legislation that would impose stricter regulatory requirements on these social media bodies that are at the moment competing very successfully against the traditional print media. Um, perhaps if such legislation were to suggest outlawing certain kinds of content or to impose stringent penalties for the non-removal of content. I well, you're talking about... On the, on the horizon that would do that. You're talking about something like an, oh, I don't know, an online safety bill. I mean, there's no chance of a government wanting to That's quite to a good name for it. You know, if I were going to draft that one, of course, I'd 
Oh, look, the online safety bill is back on the agenda. The, the other thing, just before we move on to the online safety bill, the other thing that we should be bear in mind, uh, sorry, the other thing that we should bear in mind, which is on the agenda, is the Australian-style law that penalises uh, social media outlets for uh, using newspaper content and generates revenue for those newspaper for that newspaper content, uh, mm. where the social media effectively acts as a as a disseminator. That's on the cards. Australia's already got it. We will get it at some point. So this mm. is a two or three pronged approach to cement the power of the right wing press. Well, having call me cynical. I think wrung everything out of that uh, analysis that we can. Let's move on to the online safety bill, which has returned to Parliament this week after an extended reporting stage. It includes two specific amendments to the bill worth mentioning. The first is the removal of the legal but harmful provision for those over 18, which means that companies will not have to take down specific content as defined by the bill and the inclusion of tougher measures to protect women and girls from controlling or coercive behaviour. According to the press release, any incentives for social media firms to over-remove people's legal online content will be taken out of the online safety bill. Firms will still need to protect children and remove content that is illegal or prohibited by their terms of service. However, the bill will no longer define specific types of legal content that companies must address. The amendments aimed to boost protections for women and girls online are the addition of the criminal offence of controlling or coercive behaviour to the list of priority offences in the bill. This means that platforms will have to take proactive steps, such as putting in place measures to allow users to manage who can interact with them or their content, instead of only responding when this illegal content is flagged to them through complaints. Yeah, and there's... uh... I mean, the difficulty now with the online safety bill is that it's very much the camel, the horse that was designed by a committee. Uh, There are some aspects now of the online safety bill, which I think we would all get behind uh, and support, such as tackling coercion. Uh, And there are other aspects that remain deeply problematic, such as the exemptions, uh, the, the wide ranging exemptions for the press on the spurious claim a uh, spurious basis that newspapers are properly regulated uh, in circumstances where where we know they're not. So um, you will still be able to breach the online safety bill by uh, visiting your local right wing newspaper uh, and typing out your hate filled speech uh, in their comments section. So all of that will still happen. But um, I'm not troubled. In fact, I, I would say I. Um, supportive of the removal of the the vaguely worded uh harmful but legal prohibition i mean that that clause didn't really make any sense to me uh as it were um as it as it was um and uh there are still issues i think in terms of psychological harm and that standard um but it it's becoming it's fast becoming a white elephant. Sorry, I'm mixing up my animal metaphors here. Um, it's it's both a camel and a white elephant. It's a white elephant camel. I agree with Paul on that issue of the harmful but legal. Now, I understand kind of what they were sort of getting at, but uh, the problem is it's a completely self-defeating definition. Um, 
once you put a prohibition in statute on certain material, the effect of that is it becomes illegal. So harmful material would be illegal. There wouldn't be anything that was harmful and legal because they would have just made it illegal, not necessarily criminal, but they would have found a way statutorily to prohibit its dissemination on social media platforms, which effectively makes it illegal. Um, yeah. So it's all self-defeating and, 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 and vague that 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 definition, um, and it was never gonna it was never gonna fly. No, and I think also as well, of course, um, Elon Musk has already foreshadowed why such a provision would be problematic. Um, he's quite happy to wave through the white supremacists to allow them to disseminate uh, whatever they want. Um, but decried uh, parody accounts as harmful, uh, particularly accounts that parodied him. So there you go. There's an example of uh, the type of um, content that could become outlawed on Twitter. Uh, Parody accounts are perfectly legal, but if they're thought to be harmful... The next thing I want to mention in this episode is the Met's illegal filming of children at a school strike protest in March 2019. A freedom of information request by the civil rights campaign group Big Brother Watch has revealed that the Met were rebuked by the Information Commissioner's Office for video surveillance of the school strike protest, which was attended by up to 10,000 children and young people. The ICO ruled that the data gathering was unlawful, saying that the force had failed to consider the privacy rights of the children at the protest and had not considered their entitlements, their entitlement to added data protection in light of their age. I think this is quite remarkable. The police managed to invade the privacy of 10,000 children in one go um that that is a quite astonishing piece of work um and i think we should take a moment just to let that figure sink in we, we headlines about the metropolitan police doing awful things to children in london are not infrequent these days we've seen some absolutely horrendous ones over the last year or so, particularly. By comparison, this almost seems mild. And yet we're talking about the privacy rights of 10,000 children being seriously violated. Mm. They were filmed in a way that I'm afraid is becoming more and more common for purely peaceful protests, something that uh, the government is very keen should happen, uh, that, that, that peaceful protests should be filmed and the people there should be investigated and surveilled and perhaps even issued with... Uh, with orders to prohibit them from attending protests in advance um, under the uh, new provisions uh, that Suella Braverman is so uh, fond of talking about. Um, The children here were subject to surveillance and then the retention of this video data. So the police retaining a vast amount of personal data about the people attending those protests and their children. What exactly was the security threat here? Even assuming, arguendo, that it is plausible to suggest that peaceful protests routinely or occasionally result 
in major security concerns such that every single attendee has to be subject to detailed video surveillance, even assuming that were correct, and I wouldn't accept it for a moment as being correct, but even if it were, what was the threat here? You've got 10,000 children on a school strike protesting about climate justice. The issue here really is proportionality, isn't it? It, it, it? The legal issue is proportionality. A, does the police consider the impact on children? And B, having considered it, do they make uh, an appropriate proportionality assessment? The ICO finds here that the police did not consider the impact on the children. And clearly, I think we can all see that this uh, the police's actions were disproportionate. So... We failed both parts of the basic legal test. And, and it does leave me with a question. Are the police even trying to adhere to human rights law on this? Uh, uh, primary legislation. Because if they are, who on earth is training them? Um, are they doing the job right? The trainers, that is. And if the training is good, why do the police not remember it when they leave their office and go onto the street? And if they are not trying to adhere to the law, but actively trying to undermine it, well, that just raises a whole set of other questions. Now, I, I don't I don't make an assertion either way, but I, I, I don't see many options other than those two. Either they are trying to implement the law and are failing miserably to do it, because it's not the first time that protests, you know, the, the Sarah Everard protest was similarly unlawfully pro uh, policed because of a failure to take into account the impact of the policing presence on the rights of the participants. Different set of rights, but same basic legal error going on there in the judgment of the police. So either they are trying and failing miserably, or they're actively trying to undermine people's legal rights. Well, I we can go further back than that, of course, because we can go back to a case, the Court of Appeal case in Wood, and the police, uh, the Met Metropolitan Police, uh, which was a similar issue of a photograph or a protester being retained for too long, being retained for more than was necessary. So the Met had been put on notice for over a decade now that their approach to this is not in conformity with human rights law. Um, I would suggest they don't care. Um, certainly their track record would suggest that they don't care. Uh, the Mets is cropping up too often in the news as a problem. And the fact that it's cropping up at all would suggest that there are actually <laughs> a lot more cases that we don't know about. And uh, the complaints about the Mets of systemic problems that go back decades and decades have not been resolved, not helped by the cronyism between the Met and this incumbent government in which one turns a blind eye on the other, it seems, in my opinion. 10,000. Wow. I want to uh, move out of the UK for the last item on today's agenda, and that is to ask Paul briefly for his thoughts on the Latvian regulator's decision to revoke the licence for TV Rain, the Russian broadcaster who had moved to Latvia from Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. The licence was revoked on grounds of national security. Surely regulators shouldn't be deciding matters of national security, as we see here. 
Yes, so um, this uh, decision by the Latvian regulator has caused uh, a certain amount of controversy and uh, has raised the question of whether the uh, Latvian uh, Media Council um, had uh, acted ultra-virus in uh, revoking uh, the licence of uh, TV Rain. Um, there's there's a few uh, points that, that I want to make about this, and of course this is a story that's been covered a lot in, in the press. Um, the, the first is, uh, I think we need to step back uh, from uh, the issue and see it in its broader context. Um, although it would be easy to be critical of the Latvian authorities here um, and to take what would amount to a very neat uh, liberal point uh, to decry the invasion of uh, free speech rights uh, in this way, we need to see this in the context of an illegal war that is taking place in which Russia has invaded uh, the Ukraine. Uh, TV Rain, as we know, is a uh, liberal broadcaster uh, and had made the decision to leave uh, Russia uh, because of the um, rising tensions in that country, uh, a country in which it is now an offence to discredit the Russian army it is also an offence to uh, take issue with the with the war in Ukraine. And. <coughs> um, for the Latvian authorities, they point to uh, several instances in which uh, their regulations have been breached by TV Rain, and these range from uh, an on-air slip, or what, what was later explained as an on-air slip, in which uh, the journalists spoke of our army uh, in respect of Russia, um, decried and pleaded for... Um, uh, greater provisions to be given to the to the Russian army uh, showed a map of uh, Crimea and described it as being Russian when in fact uh, it is not. It's Ukrainian. It's illegally occupied by Russia, um, and there were other breaches as well. So the language of public safety and national security might look odd. Um. But on one level, this is about rules, regulatory rules and non-compliance. At another level, it's about a Russian propaganda machine, which is very successful and whose tentacles have reached into mainland Europe, most often through social media. And we've spoken on uh, this show before about uh, Russian TV. Uh, and um, concerns about Russian TV and its impartiality. Uh, I'm not saying that this is the case, but one could understand if Latvia was concerned that uh, a liberal TV show moving to its country was in fact a front for Russian propaganda. Um, at another level as well, I think it's important that we see this decision for what it is. This is a decision that's been made at a time of war. Now, Britain and America and every other mature liberal society you care to name treats free speech differently in times of war to how it treats free speech in times of peace. In times of war, free speech is significantly limited. Just look at what America did in the 1940s. 
look at what America did even in peacetime during the 1960s uh, and the 1950s. Uh, look at what Britain did during the 1940s. Look at what Britain did during the First World War as well. So we shouldn't be so quick to decry these interferences as being somehow illiberal uh, because we're not in the same situation that Latvia is in. Latvia has a difficult relationship at the best of times uh, with Russia. So I'm not surprised that it would take a position that to us might seem uh, indefensible. Um, I think there is a genuine concern about Russian propaganda and how far it extends. The other issue as well is that we might ask whether a Latvian regulator can make a decision about national security and public safety uh, in circumstances where it doesn't seem to be uh, conversing with intelligence services, although it might be. But when we talk about national security in the context of Putin, we're not discussing something that's complicated and covert. We're discussing something that's simple and overt. We're talking about a leader and his supporters who openly speak about the use of nuclear weapons, who openly speak about declaring war on the West, who openly speak about destroying our way of life. We don't want to give airtime to that kind of totalitarianism. We don't want to encourage sympathy for it. And so it is for all of us to take the threat of Putin seriously and to look for ways to curb the spread of misinformation and disinformation. We've talked about this previously. If we're going to take disinformation and misinformation seriously, then we have to limit broadcasting and we have to limit speech generally. And this, for me, does represent a clear and present threat, not only to our way of life, but to our very existence. And on that basis, I applaud what Latvian TV, the Latvian regulator has done. I have absolutely no problem with it whatsoever. I think that's a nice place to wrap up. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for your wonderful insights as always. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. As ever, follow us on social media and we will be back in the new year with more Media Law Podcast newscasts. Thanks very much. Bye.